This is the Associated Students Radio Hour. I'm Avital Pellock, Director of Media Production for the Office of Student Engagement at MSU. Are you making a nest? No, I'm just giving them material. Okay. I'm isolating with my six-year-old daughter, Penny. We went for a bike ride last weekend. The sun was shining, the birds were out, people were walking, running, and biking. In many ways, it was a completely normal outing. And yet, the strangeness was ever-present as I passed people on the trail, awkwardly swerving to maintain appropriate distance. We went to feed the fish at the hatchery. Penny was so thrilled to be out, I heard her say to herself as she walked by that it was the best day she'd ever had. In the evening, we had our first backyard fire of the season. We're gonna burn the Christmas tree. Are you excited about that? Yes. We've begun a tradition in recent years of burning our Christmas tree to welcome spring. Usually we share this ritual with a backyard full of friends. Later that evening, the state of Montana would officially be sheltering in place. As social distancing measures extend toward the summer months, it is clear that coronavirus is not like an attacker to be fought and vanquished. It is a new reality that we have to adapt to over an extended period of time. For even when these more extreme mitigation measures subside, the return to business as usual will be gradual. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Neha John Henderson about the human stress response and how it interacts with health and immunity. Neha is the director of the Stress, Adversity, Resilience, and Health Lab, whose research is focused on understanding how psychosocial experiences across the lifespan affect health and disease. Here's Neha. So my name is Neha John Henderson. Um, I'm an assistant professor um, in the Department of Psychology at Montana State University. Um, And my background, um, I started off my undergraduate career with a major in sociology. Um, I was very interested in um, distribution of wealth um, and the implications for social class and how they might affect health. Um, And so I remember I started off with that major um, thinking um, that I was going to go into medical school, Um, but my whole trajectory changed quite significantly when I was in one lecture with a sociology professor and he started talking about um, the pathways through which poverty can affect health, but specifically focusing on psychological pathways. Um, And so the psychological implications of poverty. Um, And this wasn't his area of expertise, but he just kind of touched on it. Um, And that kind of opened up this whole, all these new questions for me. Um, And I really realized that um, I didn't, what I wanted to focus on with regards to health was more of an understanding or developing an understanding of how psychological experiences get under the skin, so to speak, um, and affect health. Um, So I graduated with a sociology degree um, and then decided I wanted to go um, into psychology um, for graduate research um, and graduate work. So I applied um, and went to um, UC Berkeley 
for my um, doctoral degree um, in psychology and started off in a behavioral neuroscience lab where we were really working with rodent models um, to try to understand how the first couple of weeks of life, um, differences in maternal care can really change trajectories of health, um, including how the hormonal system works, um, how the brain develops and functions, um, and how um, ultimately these animals will respond behaviorally to stress that they experience later on. And so that, um, I really liked the work, um, but then I decided that I wanted to use that model and, and to kind of apply it to humans and think about how experiences across the lifespan um, can affect health. Um, and so I kind of teamed up with a different couple different researchers um, in social psychology, um, developmental psychology, and really kind of created a program through which um, I started to consider how um, experiences and environments and relationships um, can predict health outcomes um, at different points in the life. Um, and so after I graduated from Berkeley, I went to University of Pittsburgh and did a postdoctoral fellowship in cardiovascular behavioral medicine, um, during which I developed a lot more or acquired a lot more knowledge about the tools that I can use um, to really understand the biological pathways, the behavioral pathways, the immunological pathways um, through which these very social experiences and our outside, you know, kind of our um, psychological environments can actually disrupt and change the way all of these systems work, um, how it can change our behaviors in ways that affect health. And that's largely the work that I'm doing now, um, continue to do um, at Montana State University in our lab, which we call the Stress, Adversity, Resilience, and Health Lab. Um, so we're really interested in identifying pathways through which um, experiences that we've already had early on in our lives, but also experiences that we continue to have um, change the way that we do everything in ways that can affect health. So things like the way that we sleep, what we eat, how we interact with others, um, how we respond to stress, um, and so on. Um, and I think um, I would like to note that a primary focus of my research is not just about identifying risk, but really very much interested in identifying um, factors that allow people to thrive in spite of adversity or in spite of stress. Um, so thinking about resilience a lot these days. Thank you for sharing your background with us. It's always really interesting to, for me to hear how a single lecture can change the course of somebody's academic career. Um, and then before we go forward, could you please give us just a brief overview of what health psychology is? Yeah. Um, so I think health psychology responded to, you know, a whole history of, um, of research that kind of led up to the emergence of health psychology. But what we've known for many years that um, behaviors that we engage in and lifestyle choices that we make can negatively affect our health, both our mental health and our physical health. Um, so health psychology as a field tries to understand the factors that drive the choices that we make, right? um, including choices that are going to positively and negatively affect our health. So as an area of research, I think um, health psychology is um, one of its greatest strengths is that we consider how biological, social, and psychological factors influence these choices in ways that over time can really have implications for health. Um, another important thing I think that I really like about health psychology is that we're not just interested in identifying risk. Um, we are very much interested in the identification of the factors that allow individuals to thrive um, and to be healthy 
um, but also to recover from illnesses or cope with difficult or challenging circumstances. And I think that that's really relevant to us right now, <laughs> as we are in a, in a pretty stressful circumstance. So my next question is going to be that, you know, psychologists have found that the number of in-person social interactions a person has throughout the day is one of the strongest lifestyle predictors of longevity. But in the interest of public health right now, we are rightfully being asked to avoid all such interaction to slow the spread of the virus. Um, so what can health psychology tell us about the, those best resilient strategies for mitigating the effects of social distancing? Um, yeah, I think I think we have, as a field, we have a lot to offer as far as, um, you know, suggestions and resources um, that would likely help individuals, um, you know, kind of manage this difficult situation, right? So I think, first of all, one of the things that um, I often talk about in my health psychology course is the importance of perspective, right? Um, and so I think, you know, just to begin with, um, it's really important to remember that this is a temporary situation, hopefully, um, and that it's needed so that we can eventually go back to the way that we you know, are used to kind of living our daily lives and that we can go back to enjoying our social relationships and our communities. Um, so first of all, just kind of thinking about perspective and remembering kind of the motivation for this circumstance, right? Um, second, I think that health psychology has the most insight to offer with regards to how we can manage the stress that we as individuals are likely feeling. Um, so, you know, we think about um, at the very basic level, um, one of the first things I talk about when I talk about stress in health psychology is the importance of appraisals that we make, right? Um, so a primary appraisal is when you kind of encounter a situation, you think, is this something that's a threat to my well-being, right? So if we think about the specific request that we're being asked, you know, or that's, you know, we've been handed, right, to kind of limit our social interactions and to socially distance, if you think about that request, it really is at its face value actually about protecting our health and our well-being, right? So if you see it that way, then maybe the whole appraisal process can just stop, right? And you decide that, you know what, this is something that's actually meant or designed to protect my well-being and shouldn't be a stress. So perhaps we can stop there. Um, that's one thing, right? But then if you still decide that, okay, maybe I, I know that it's designed to protect my well-being, but you know what? It's still stressful. I still can't see my friends. I still can't have these interactions that I'm normally having. Um, so then you go to the second part of the appraisal process, which is the secondary stress appraisal. And at this point, the individual has to decide, do I have the resources to cope, right? So this is, I think, is when we can really mitigate the damage of stress using some kind of basic health psychology principles. Um, so, you know, yes, it's a stressful situation, um, and it is. I do feel like it's negatively affecting my well-being. But what are the resources that I have that are available to me that I can use to manage the stress? Um, so, you know, while we are limited, what we can do because of the socially distancing, you can call your friends and family, and we can have you know these virtual interactions. Um, we can reach out to people that, you know, maybe you actually normally don't have regular contact with, right, because you're at home more often. Um, there are also so many resources available online, new kind of support communities. Um, and so I think we can, you know, try to utilize the resources that are available to us to cope with this hopefully temporary, you know, experience, um, but also to perhaps develop new resources and new communities um, within our limited kind of context. Um, and then finally, I think there's also some really good work in health psychology indicating that, of course, um, some of my own work, you know, highlights what you're talking about, right? That um, the more positive social interactions you have, that kind of tends to predict 
longevity um, and better health outcomes, right? But there's also some really great work showing that sometimes what matters the most is your perception of those interactions and your perceived satisfaction with the social support that you're getting, right? So based on this work, even if you can't see your friends and family and you can't partake in your normal kind of face-to-face interactions, we can really shift our focus to um, thinking about and appreciating the social connections that we can have um, and improving the relationships that we do have access to, even if they are virtually at the moment, right? Um, And also thinking about, um, we often, you know, we tend to focus on kind of the more negative components of our experience when something goes wrong, but I guarantee if everyone really sat down and thought about it, there is some kind of small, like bright spot, right? Um, There's maybe, your friends are reaching out to you, checking on you. Um, there's some social support that you're getting, and we should try to appreciate those, you know, little pieces, right? The social support that we have that is available to us, and I think that that's really important. And so, another challenge with these prevention measures is that they require us to quickly change a lot of like very automatic and habitual behaviors, um, even like shaking hands and touching faces. And I know that that that's something that health psychology touches on, or behavioral health touches on, is is getting people to change these very habitual behaviors. Um, are, are there any effective strategies that you know of for getting people to successfully make these changes? Um, so we do talk a lot about that in health psychology, right? Health behavior change. Um, but I think, you know, that's in the context of, you know, kind of more enduring situations, yeah. right? So I think that this is really tough. And I think, you know, um, probably that the easiest way to do this is just to make it almost as impossible as you can to engage in those behaviors, right? Just because we as humans are such social creatures. And these are things that we're taught from a very young age that these are the um, social norms, right? Um, that when you see someone, you you make eye contact and you reach out and perhaps you know shake their hand or I mean these are appropriate behaviors right and these are part of our what we do as humans so I think because again this is just um, a special circumstance and temporary that that's why you know it's easier just to kind of stay at home <laughs> right um, and when you can um, and also to remember I think that um, it's not a forever change in our world and we will all be okay eventually and we can all resume um, our normal social behaviors. I think, you know, it's easy to get frustrated. Um, It's easy to, you know, think like, oh no, what's someone going to think of me if I don't do this socially acceptable behavior? But everyone's in the same exact situation, right? Or should be, right? Uh, And so I think it's important to just be patient with ourselves and not really focus on like, what are the effective ways that I can change this behavior? Because we don't really want to change it forever, right? Um, It's just limited context, right? So really, you know, be patient with yourselves and others as we all navigate this new circumstance and figure out ways that we still can be socially appropriate without actually jeopardizing the health of ourselves and our fellow community members. Um, And then next, uh, I would really like to talk to you about stress, um, because also some of the thing things I've learned about health psychology is that what makes a situation stressful can vary between individuals and circumstances. But as far as I understand, we know that events which are negative, uncontrollable, unpredictable, and ambiguous are more likely to be stressful. And arguably, the situation checks all of those boxes. So um, first, could you just give us a background about what is a stress response and what happens to us biologically when we experience a stressor? 
Yes. Um, so I think absolutely this pandemic, the situation, the circumstance that we all find ourselves in today does, as you said, check all the boxes of what we would, you know, research says makes something stressful, right? Um, we don't have a lot of control and we don't have answers about how long this is going to go on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or how many people will be affected. Um, so as, you know, this progresses, as days turn into weeks, the stress is no longer, you know, acute and short, short term, right? Um, it's becoming more chronic. Um, and even worse, we don't know how long it's going to last, right? So the duration is uncertain. Um, and so I think, um, thinking about your question, I think a lot about the work of um, Dr. Robert Sapolsky, uh, who's one of kind of the fathers of stress research. Um, and he notes that this is exactly when stress becomes problematic, right? And he spends a lot of time talking about the stress response and that a stress response is, is um, adaptive, right? Um, in these acute short-term situations. And he kind of grounds everything in thinking about, um, you know, animals in the wild, right? And so if you think about um, a zebra running for their life from a predator, they turn on the stress response, right? They kick into high gear um, and all systems are going, right? Um, well, particularly the sympathetic nervous system is really what's going to kick into high gear. And what that sympathetic nervous system does when it activates is that um, it mobilizes all of the resources that the zebra has to allow it to go as fast as it possibly can to save its life. And of course, this makes sense, right? Because the zebra wants to live, right? Um, And in order to be successful in running as fast as it can, it has to use all of its energy, all of its resources to get its muscles moving um, and heart racing, blood pressure going. Um, and to do that, because it's energy costly, it shuts down, the zebra shuts down everything else, right? So anything to do with um, growth, anything to do with digestion, reproductive system, um, and also the immune system, all of these processes are really shut down temporarily so the zebra can focus on running as fast as it can. Um, so how the zebra ultimately is either successful, it either survives or it dies. And once that stress is over, they're no longer being chased, the stress response is now shut off, right? Um, And everything returns to normal, back to homeostasis. Um, And the zebra is not gonna stand around ruminating about the next time this is gonna happen, right? Um, It's just done with it, right? It survived and it goes back to its regular life. And it's not sitting around anticipating the next kind of stressful event, right? And that's really what distinguishes the stress response in humans and animals, right? So if you think about us and you go back to this question of the stress response, um, during this pandemic to varying degrees, I think we are all experiencing an ongoing stress response, right? Um, Meaning that all of those important systems that I just talked about, like the reproductive system, the growth system, um, digestion and immune system are all gonna be compromised over time if we don't have a release if we allow ourselves to be kind of chronically consumed by the stress of this pandemic. Um, So if you think about it that way, um, the stress response, um, if it's enduring, if it's chronic, if it never lets go, um, there are profound implications for our health and well-being. And what does research tell us are the effects of chronic stress that we know from other situations? I think the negative effects are far-reaching. So at a very basic level, the stress response is using up your energy, right? Um, So if you are a person who's having, you know, over this month or however long it's going to be, a 
an exaggerated stress response for a large portion of, of every day. It's almost like you are a zebra running for its life, except you're really just sitting at home with no immediate threat looming in your future, right? So this is not useful. Um, and so we think about the consequences at the physiological level, this is really taxing on all of your biological systems. Um, so if you think about kind of an analogy that I use sometimes in my health psychology course, if you think about your blood vessels as being a water hose, right? If you have a water hose um, and you're using it all of the time, um, and not only are you using it, but you're, you've turned it up really, really high, right? So the water pressure is going, you know, the pressure is very high um, as well. So over time, this is going to damage the hose, right? Um, it's going to have a lot of wear and tear. So in a similar manner, um, you know, if your blood pressure is constantly elevated, as it is typically when you're experiencing the stress response, um, this is placing a lot of wear and tear on your whole cardiovascular system. Um, so going back to the zebra example, if you're chronically stressed, now all of a sudden the function of your digestive, reproductive, and immune system, um, all of these things are really kind of, um, the break is on them, right? They're being suppressed. So this obviously over time has implications for a wide range of diseases, um, including things like fertility issues um, and digestive disorders, um, but also you know, the immune system, right? So vulnerability to infections. Um, and so this last point is particularly relevant for the current situation, because if your immune system is compromised as a result of ongoing stress response, you are actually going to be more vulnerable to infection, to infectious diseases um, that your immune system typically would fight against and protect you from. Yeah. And then, um, like you had mentioned earlier, that stress response, it, you know, it is important in registering something as a threat. So like um, a certain amount of stress would probably make us more likely to comply to social distancing measures, to take things seriously, not to put other people at risk and ourselves at risk. Um, so how do we maintain this like a vigilance about the situation while minimizing that uh, negative effect of chronic and repeated stress? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I do want to make sure that I'm clear that it is useful to have the stress response, like for the zebra, but also for ourselves, right? So much like the zebra, we need to have a stress response to mobilize our resources for our own survival, right? Mm -hmm. So for the zebra, this means having enough energy to move as quickly as possible. But for us, I think it means making sure that we actually also in a similar way have the resources that we need for ourselves and our loved ones to survive. And hopefully this is not just about toilet paper, right? But thinking about, thinking about, um, you know, like there is a certain amount of, of fear, especially if you're taking care of other people, right? That, you know, I want to make sure that I have the physical resources and the psychological resources to survive this period, right? So it might mean that having the stress response makes us vigilant um, about exposure. Um, so one of the things that the stress response says is that your pupils actually dilate. Um, and so you become more visually aware of your environment um, around you. Um, so in that way, that's a very you know obvious vigilance of your environment. But perhaps as humans, you know, this vigilance allows us to, to be more on top of thinking about our exposure to the virus, right? And taking the necessary precautions to minimize our risk for ourselves and also the people that we are taking care of, right? So I think that this response is useful to the degree to which it's driving us to do what we need to do to survive. Um, but however, at the same time, if we are activating that same stress response that the zebra is 
you know, when they're running for its life persistently all the time, all day from morning to night, um, while you're sitting on the couch watching TV and ruminating about all the possible things that can go wrong, then that response becomes not only not useful, but actually damaging. Yeah. And so I'd like uh, in health psychology research, what are the recommendations for once somebody is in kind of a chronic stress cycle? How, how do you get out of it? Um, so, so one thing is, I mean, first of all, is the stress real? Right? I yeah. mean, so some people um, talking about appraisals, right? I'm thinking about, you know, have you created a situation like worrying about um, something that's going to come 10 years from now mm-hmm. and having that dominate your everyday um, life is not useful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly if there's a deadline, you know, next week that you need to complete something by, then that is a real stress. And you it is actually useful to kind of have that stress response to mobilize yourself, to motivate yourself to get that thing done. Um, I think that what health psychology um has to say, the research really has to say is that, especially for some populations and communities, you cannot get rid of the stress, right? The stress is there um, and it's, there's not, it's not, not possible to get rid of it, right? Um, for whatever the reasons are, um, environment, resources. But there are very powerful tools um, that should be accessible to everyone um, as far as stress management, right? So if you can't get rid of the stress, how can you figure out a way to cope, right? Um, how can you make sure that you um, are sleeping enough so that the next day you're more psychologically equipped to deal with the stress that you're going to experience? Um, what social support can you draw on? Um, how can you learn to regulate your emotions in ways that are going to be more adaptive for you if the stress continues to kind of, kind of persist, right? So I think that's where the focus is in health psychology. Not so much about getting rid of the stress, which we rely on, you know, hopefully there's going to be changes in public policy, um, in public health, um, changes in healthcare um, access and stuff like that. But if those things don't happen, we as psychologists have a lot of tools that we know um, and resources that people can use to figure out how to cope effectively. Yeah. Um, and like you just mentioned, uh, this situation is obviously is going to be more stressful for some individuals rather than other individuals, you know, how is the pandemic exposing um, health disparities between socioeconomic classes? Yeah, I think at at multiple levels um, that this pandemic, one of the things it's doing is exposing um, inequality across, you know, when you think about resources and access to resources and quality of resources. Um, And so um, I think it's unfortunate because um, as I talk about a lot in my health psychology class, one of the strongest predictors of health outcomes is socioeconomic status, right? So overall, we see that people who come from low socioeconomic status tend to have worse health health outcomes across the board, really, um, with mental health and physical health. Um, And a lot of the work, a lot of the research really highlights that Yes, this is about um, differences in objective resources. Um, having less money, having less education. Um, well, having less money, you have, you know, your what you can consume, what you can buy to eat um, changes. Um, you have less time to prepare good, healthful meals. Um, you are worrying about how you're going to make ends meet, providing a roof over your head. Um, your education, if it's lower, you're limited as far as what jobs you can get, so your income becomes further limited. Um, but also access to healthcare, right? Um, we know that um, 
SES is a good predictor of, we, we don't have universal healthcare um, in America. So um, a lot of people do not have access to healthcare to begin with, right? So they wait until their health is, you know, it's an emergency and then go emergency care. Um, so there's not a lot of preventive medicine, especially for people from low SES backgrounds. Um, so I think what this pandemic is doing is first of all, um, you know, really bringing to light that things like social distancing or the privilege of being able to stay at home and work is not so much available to low SES or low socioeconomic status um, populations, right? Um, if they're relying on a check, if they're working um, in jobs that are essential, um, you know, and, and they need that money to get by, um, they're there, right? I mean, they can't work from home, right? Um, also kind of other services where people are relying on um, individuals to come work in their homes. Now, because of social distancing, those jobs are also limited as well, right? Um, and so how are they gonna get by? And then if they get sick, what's gonna happen then, right? Um, and so there's differences as far as, um, you know, objectively thinking about um, the money coming in, the privilege of staying home, whether or not they're gonna actually go see a doctor, have access to get a test if they need it. Um, but then also the stress, right? I mean, so you kind of mentioned before, like one of the biggest predictors of what's stressful is uncertainty unpredictability um, and lack of control, right? So things, I don't know what's gonna happen, right? And that's stressful for everyone, but it's really stressful if you know, you're know you worried about how you're gonna put food on the table tomorrow, right? Um, and you're not sure if you're gonna have a job next month, right? Um, so I think that the low socioeconomic status populations are gonna get hit from pretty much every angle. Um, and we're going to see a lot of data, I think, at the end of this, showing that they were hit the hardest um, for these reasons. Yeah. And uh, so you are affiliated with the Center for American Indian and Rural Health Equity here at MSU. Uh, does the pandemic present unique challenges to Native and rural communities compared to urban centers? And what can we be doing right now to better prepare these communities for the potential impact of coronavirus? Um, I think it certainly presents unique challenges to rural communities um, and particularly American Indian communities. Um, if we think about, you know, in the state of Montana, um, particularly um, access to healthcare is always limited for these communities, just generally um, by virtue of um, their geographic you know, location um, and relative isolation. Um, and oftentimes, you know, in regular circumstances, these community members have to travel great distances just to get access to healthcare if they even have access to healthcare, right? Um, and they're also less likely to have access to testing, right, on the reservation. Um, and that's really important when we think about containing the spread of the virus. Um, unfortunately, as a psychologist, again, you know, kind of getting back to the point I made before, um, I think to really make a difference for these communities, there has to be shifts in the healthcare system, um, public health, um, public policy, and, and these resources should be made available all the time, but particularly in situations like this. Um, and so I think the most important thing we can do is to make sure that these communities are getting the information that everyone else is getting, which sometimes, you know, internet access, um, access to technology is also limited um, in these places. Um, so getting information that they can then use to make the right decisions um, that are gonna limit their risk is really important. Um, and then of course, you know, anything that we can do to bring actual objective tangible resources to the reservations including more healthcare providers um, and infrastructure for testing 
um, all of those things would be the most beneficial. And in your opinion, what are some lines of research or research questions that will be important for health psychologists to investigate as the situation unfolds? I think that there's um, a lot of questions that are going to come up, and this field is really, um, I think, ultimately, um, health psychology is going to be very involved in trying to understand the long-term consequences of a situation like this. Um, but I think overall from this unfortunate, rather stressful situation, um, we can learn a lot about how we can um, better handle a situation like this if it, you know, something similar happens again. Um, so first of all, I think one thing that health psychology will be interested in is understanding which health behaviors are most Im impacted by a situation like this. Um, and I would imagine, um, based on my own research and the work of others, that sleep and diet are two which are likely going to be very affected um, in, by this situation um, for most people. Um, so we know that both sleep and diet affect immune system function. Um, and if the data from this pandemic indicate that these are two behaviors which are really taking a hit, which are really suffering, um, then in the future, it will be important um, to provide information to communities, particularly communities that are at risk, about how to manage those two health behaviors in the context of a pandemic um, like this. I think it will also be important to look at communities or more globally countries um, that have had relative success in managing the virus spread and also look at how um, what are the psychosocial or psychological indicators that predict resilience um, in a situation like this. For example, I'm thinking about you know, what um, allows individuals or communities to minimize anxiety or, or depressive symptoms and psychological stress. And so if we can, as health psychologists, um, understand um, the psychosocial factors or psychological factors that associate with resilience um, and you know, surviving this situation, then we can, in the future, inform our efforts to help individuals and we can ensure that we make a special effort to really target and intervene and help individuals who are particularly at risk. And finally, um, how have you been coping with uh, the pandemic? Um, I, I mean, you know, trying to see um, the glass half full when I can <laughs> instead of half empty, right? Um, so trying to take advantage of, I mean, I would never choose the situation or this, you know, for this to happen, but it is our reality um, for a certain period of time. So I've been trying to take advantage of our new reality. Um, and so being at home um, means that I have more time to, you know, try new recipes and cook um, and read and watch movies that I've been meaning to watch for a while. And I think most importantly, spend extra time with my family, um, which does include my primarily my kids and my husband. Um, but I also feel like I've I've had um, more opportunity to really focus on strengthening relationships that I normally don't focus on as much. So including, you know, family and friends that are in other countries. Um, and, and it's really helpful um, to reach out to them and to hear about how they're navigating the circumstances. But also just I, at the end of this, I think I'll have better relationships with them, right? Um, so forging these new relationships um, and just kind of constantly reminding myself to, uh, you know, think about what I teach in health psychology, right? Which is that um, most things are temporary, right? Um, yeah. And that a lot of it is perspective. A lot of it is, you know, figuring out um, what is a what is a um, 
a reliable, you know, a good way that I can cope um, in a way that's going to affect my health positively, right? So I can't change the pandemic. I can't change. I'm not working on that level, um, but I do have control of my individual responses to the stress, um, and I do know a little bit about, you know, things that have been shown to be good for health, right? Um, coping strategies that work. Um, so I'm trying to utilize all the resources that I have that are available to me, um, and to help me, you know, figure out ways to cope um, that are useful um, when I feel kind of you know, weighed down by the stress of this particular time period. Dr. Neha John Henderson is an assistant professor in the psychology department and the director of the Stress, Adversity, Resilience, and Health Lab. If you want to find out more about her research, I will post a link to her lab in the episode notes. I have some more interviews lined up, but if there is a researcher on campus you would like me to talk to, or if you have any suggestions for the show, you can email me at asmsumedia at montana.edu. Later this week, we will be interviewing the ASMSU presidential and vice presidential candidates. So look out for that and make sure to make your voice heard in the student body elections on April 14th and 15th. Also, direct links for the podcast are now available for more platforms, including Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Spotify. You can also copy the RSS link into the application of your choice. You can find all of these links at anchor.fm slash asradiohour. Until next time, I'm Avital Pellock, and this has been the Associated Students Radio Hour.